PDF gaming is finally here. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. British bedroom coders go to Hollywood. Amiga OS 3.2 bounces onto the scene. Mega Man gets physical. And the first PDF game ever? All this in our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Now, John, before we get started, there's been some uh, discussion on the subreddit this week posted by listener Hastian Z. And I think it's really important that we clear this up because sometimes if you don't nip a rumor in the bud, it can snowball. And before you know it, there's, there's no fix in it. So I just want to clarify that no, I was not representing Georgia in the Eurovision Song Contest this week. <laughs> I, you know, my inbox sort of blew up when I when, when when that particular performance came on and said, "Listen, your buddy is is on this thing." So, uh, now, do you feel better for having got that particular bit of information off your chest, Neil? I feel better. I feel better, and hopefully, every time he appears on the telly now, I won't get tagged as I have been in Twitter. <laughs> so, anyway, yes, let's get to the first story now. That's cleared up. <laughs> all right, all right. So this first story is shared by Pajaco6502 on the subreddit, and it's about a film in the works uh, that we're told is ready for release by the end of this year, but that's a point that we'll come back to shortly. What this is, is a movie covering the early days of the video games industry with a particular focus on the British rise to success, the bedroom coder and the software houses that sprung up around the country, particularly in the north of the country, in the rainy north. It seemed to keep people inside and coding and contributed to a very successful software industry here in the UK. Software houses like Ocean and Gremlin. And it made me smile seeing the clips that have been released uh, about this film. It, there's a very stark contrast between this movie and uh, a movie that we talked about a few months back called Max Reload and the Nether Blasters. That was a, a US-based feature film. That looked really fun and it looked really slick and well-made and well-funded. Well this is more of a documentary with dramatic interludes that sort of tie the whole story together. It doesn't look to have a feature film budget at first glance, but that does seem to give it some charm. It's sort of a soap opera kind of style. And if you want to see an example clip of this, just follow the link in the show notes to a YouTube clip that was released this week. And make sure that you watch past three minutes because that's that's sort of when the drama turns into the documentary and you can get a real sense of the style. The man behind the project is a guy called Lee Bolton and his company LRB Studios. And uh, I heard him say on a radio interview some time back that this movie has been described as having the format of Crime Watch, but for games. And uh, British listeners will know what I'm talking about there. Sort of dramatic recreations of crime taking place. Uh, only it's it's the crime of video games being made in this instance. <laughs> However, it's not all roses because digging into this project to find out more, it was originally a Kickstarter. Um, I, I don't think I've mentioned the actual name of the project yet. It's called The Button Bashers, by the way. So The Button Bashers, it all began as a, a crowdfunded Kickstarter and also an Indiegogo. And it originally had a delivery date of 2016. So we're pretty overdue. The Kickstarter shows a gap of a year and a half between the most recent and previous updates for backers. So we, we've just got an update. Um, but, but there's been a huge gap and there's obviously quite an irate comments section, as you would expect, of people who are a little unhappy not to have seen it delivered yet. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine... Um 
the the Kickstarter crowd is usually none too happy when when you know well funded projects go without updates. But uh, hopefully uh, that will that will change. You know, speaking of of Crime Watch type programs, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and one of my friends from school actually appeared on an episode of Real Stories of the Highway Patrol, Neil. <laughs> I'm thinking, it's riveting. I'm thinking of a sort of an American cop with one foot up on the fender of an American That's exactly what it is. The hat on, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, getting back to button bashers. Why are we, if, if this thing hasn't been updated in a year and a half, why are we covering it now? It sounds like old news to me. Yeah, well, curiously, the clip that we've shared, it was released just a week ago so that it appears, it appears the project isn't dead, as some have feared. And I reached out to Lee, I put my investigative hat on uh, to, to get the scoop on what actually happened. And Lee told me that the expected released movie, uh, release date for the movie is this year, but that is dependent on a worldwide distribution deal that's being hammered out at the moment. So no definitive date just yet, but it looks to be positive. And I asked him why there had been such delays on the project. And um, well, I was pretty shocked by the response. I'm just going to read it out verbatim um, as he told me. Uh, Lee said, we started the film, then as editing and extra footage was being shot, our studio got broken into and everything we built up for eight years was stolen, even down to the wires in the wall. The, the insurance did not cover it, so I had to manually build the business back up with no money. So the button bashers had to take second place. Then we got broken into again. Oh, <laughs> he says, I know, you, you can't help but just laugh at the shocking turn of events here. And he says, I, I, I believe things happen for a reason. And now I'm back, uh, back up and running and better than ever. He says the button bashers can be completed and it can be much, much better than it ever was before. Also, of course, COVID. And then brutally getting beaten up by thugs last year. He, he doesn't go into any more detail than that, but Wow. Robbed He's twice got the worst luck in the up. world. That's yeah. awful. Yeah. So he says that's delayed everything. But as you can see on the clip, it's getting there. Yeah. So as, as explanations go, that that's pretty understandable, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I also uh, I also asked him what he what he thought about how things had gone. Um, you, you know, if he was set to realize the original vision that he had for the film or not. And he said, he said the following, he said, with the extra time, the film molded into a bigger project and it flows much better. The film isn't just for us geeks. It's a film for all. It's not about chips and certain games. It's very much about the people. So he's certainly concentrating on the, the community and the people aspect of the whole thing. Mm. And he goes on to say, there's loads of hidden stuff for us geeks to uh, geek out over. Lots of nods, but it's also watchable to people outside the bubble. It's funny how an industry started and how they didn't know what they were doing. And that's something we can all enjoy. You can watch it with your partner and they will get it. You don't need to know about the subject matter. So it would appear that it's all back on track. And hopefully, despite the terrible things that Lee describes happened, it will result in a better film as a result for us all to enjoy. And the line, it's how an industry started and how they didn't know what they were doing. I think that's going to be a great source for comedy a fountain for comedy throughout this film we can already see it filtering through the clips uh, that have been shared of the movie so expect lots of self-deprecating british humor throughout the movie i think for the crowdfunders it w it may actually be really hard to reignite that enthusiasm having expected it to land in 2016 and um I, you know the tank of goodwill can only last for so long with these things especially when you've parted with some money for it but i hope all things considered that they will understand and they will get to enjoy it 
providing it turns up. Here's hoping that it does turn up this year, as promised. Yeah, I hope that after they hear the story, and one wonders why he didn't share these stories with his Kickstarter backers. I mean, Kickstarter as a platform has a tool for doing just that. So, um, you know, just so he could kind of cut these guys in on what's going on and why the project has been so delayed. But I, I can understand how, you know, having such events like that, the traumatic effects of that, maybe he, he wasn't even thinking about the Kickstarter at that point. I don't know. But anyway, hopefully the, the backers will cut him a break and hopefully this thing will actually come out. Yeah, I don't know if he's privately updated people by email or not. There's certainly not an update on the Kickstarter page about these events, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure he has his reasons. Yeah. Names uh, that are linked to this project in promotional videos include uh, the musician Rob Hubbard, John Hare, the Oliver Twins, John Rittman, R- Mel Croucher, Mark Jones, Simon Butler, lots of others. So there's a real roll call of British micro games folks, but there's also Eugene Jarvis is involved in this. So it's not exclusively UK based. But of course, what sets it apart from other movies is that UK lens, our perspective of events. So I'm looking forward to seeing that, especially if it gets a, a worldwide distribution deal. I'd like to hear your opinion and other regions' opinions on seeing this side of the coin. Yeah, yeah, I... I... I'm interested in uh, in in seeing it. It's a very odd format. Uh, you know, watching the clip, you start out thinking that it is going to be, um, you know, something like uh, Micro Men or something like that. But then it, it, the the tone shifts and it goes directly into documentary format. So it'll be interesting to see how this is received. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, say that I disregard all the issues with missed deadlines of the past and want to get behind the project. So where, where do I throw in my hard-earned dollars, Neil? I'm not sure that you actually can, to be honest, John, because the crowdfunders ended years ago. I think it's just a case of sitting tight and waiting for release. Um, I guess you could give it a follow on Twitter. The handle there is at Ellaby Studios. We'll also include that link in the show notes. Um, but otherwise, I think just just sit tight and see when it comes up for release. Um okay. Yeah. Now, Ocean feature heavily in the movie, John. Question for you. If you could pick one U.S. software house for a back-in-time, fly-on-the-wall documentary, who would you pick? Well, there have already been some good ones already. Um, But if I were going to do a docudrama a la Micro Men, which, by the way, is the definitive take on the subject. I don't think you could do any better uh, than than Micro Men. I do one on the early days of Activision. Uh, You you start with a group of disgruntled coders at Atari and the clueless management that were over them who thought that programmers were akin to the people who designed uh, patterns for towels at department stores, (laughs) you know, giving them no credit whatsoever, and uh, charting the history of their escape plan, the setup in a new office, and all of their tremendous success i think that would be a fantastic story to tell yeah absolutely why isn't this a thing already especially as the team have all regrouped recently to start making games again so it would be the perfect time they're all in the same room they're all working together let's get those stories from them if we haven't already got them so keep keep an eye out for the button bashers movie and as they always reassuringly say at the end of crime watch don't have nightmares neil it's time for a quick Amiga roll call. How many rainbow checkmarked machines currently reside in the cave and what models? <laughs> it's an embarrassment of riches. Um, <laughs> CDTV, CD32, 500, 500 plus, 600, 1200, 4000, 1500, 2000. I haven't got a 2500. I've got 1000. I've got the Checkmate 1500 plus. I don't know if that counts the modern Amigas. Yeah. The Vampire, the Pi Storms. 
the 3000 is the elusive one for me the 3000 and also the tower variants of the different mm-hmm. models uh, they go for mega bucks um mm-hmm. so yeah not a bad collection here john not bad not bad not bad i've <laughs> i've had several amigas pass through my hands over the years though obviously in the u.s uh, amigas were a complete non-factor compared to the scene in the uk and europe uh currently i have a 1000 that's right behind me that was gifted to me a few years ago by my uncle of all things and uh 600 uh which was also a gift from an amigos listener so i've been i've been a fortunate recipient of many gifts uh the 1000 has been outfitted with a new GoTech with an oled display it's got one of those rotating knobs on the front of i love a good rotating knob uh it works like a charm except for the fact that it's it's quite a chore to actually locate ntsc versions of the best games as you know the a1000 uh, only available in ntsc form but uh, the 600 also has an odd issue that if you use it with a memory expansion uh, the joystick continuously pulls to the left uh, but you know how it is with old hardware neil uh, it's it's always something hmm, that's an odd problem um just while we're on the subject of amigas you might be able to see behind me there's a amiga 500 plus cartoon classics box there mm-hmm. um I've received in the latest unboxing video on my channel um, loads and loads of boxes, repro boxes of original Amiga things. Oh. So that's full size there. And there's the Amiga 1000, the CDTV, all of that. So if you want to pair up your computer with a brand new box, you can do it now. It's awesome. Anyway, um, yeah, weird problem with the 600 pulling to the left uh, when only when a memory expansion is in. Right. That's what's happening right. for you, right? Um, did you try a different power supply? Could be drawing, could be tipping it over the edge. Yeah, I have. You know, I tried both the original PSU and then there was a, a custom one that was actually built by an Amigos listener, Jason Warrens, up in Canada. He sent me one that he built from hand. Uh, and uh, I even tried some micro adjustments to that power supply. I got a screwdriver and was twisting the knobs and things. And uh, I slightly was able to alter the voltage but it's still giving me problems you know i've also tried multiple memory expansions it's always the same issue so for the time being it's still an unsolved mystery uh, if any listeners out there have any ideas please let me know i want to get this thing going again but you know how old hardware goes neil something's always bound to go wrong sooner or later oh yes yeah there's always something i would be interested if anyone's able to help you fix that to uh, to know what the problem was but there's always something and and just to prove that point my youtube channel has a series of trash to treasure restorations where we fix up old computers and try to make them as good as new well the channel is old enough now that i've noticed recently my amiga 2000 is being a bit temperamental at boot up and that's a machine that had a full series, a full cleanup, a recap, a new CPU socket replaced it. You know, we really mm-hmm. looked after this bit of kit and and problems have come back. So th- there's no guarantee ever that new gremlins won't crop up no matter how hard you try to look after your kit. So, um, yeah, look out for my new series, Trash to Treasure to Trash to Treasure. <laughs> <laughs> and on and on and on, on, where we just fix machines all over and over again. So uh, who says I'll ever run out of material for content on the That's channel? That's right. It's a never-ending well. <laughs> well, there's good news on the horizon for all our Amiga-loving listeners out there. A subreddit user Croc came and has informed us that Hyperion has announced the imminent release of Amiga OS 3.2. And it's a real barn burner, Neil. Uh, according to Hyperion's site, Amiga OS 3.2 contains over 100 new features, plus tons of updates and bug fixes. Uh, it's been in the works for more than two years, and it replaces 
So some of the highlights include uh, Reaction GUI toolkit integration, an integrated help subsystem, improved tools, utilities, and system applications. There are also hardware integration upgrades. For example, Neil, now you can actually use the scroll wheel on your mouse to scroll through Workbench windows. It's almost like a, a modern operating system. Uh, best of all, if you already updated your Kickstart ROMs to run 3.1.4, those will also work on 3.2, so only a software purchase is necessary. Uh, Neil, what's your take on Amiga OS 3.2? I love that it's still being developed, John. This is a 35-year-old operating system that's still in active development, officially, you know, not just fan-based. And it runs on pretty much the same classic hardware as it always has done. I think I saw our friend Doug over at the 10-Minute Amiga Retrocast channel. He was asking a question on Twitter. And that question was, are there any other operating systems still in development by the official rights holders, so not fan-led projects, that still run on the original hardware? And there are some Unixy examples out there and a couple of Apple things out there. Um, but there's really not many. Not many came up in the replies. It, it does make the Amiga OS quite a rare beast in that respect. Yeah. yeah. Now, I've had a read through the release notes. I love the mouse wheel, mouse scrolling thing. Absolutely love that. Um, I also noted a few highlights. We won't go through all of them. Like you said, there's hundreds of updates. But things that stood out were the addition of a built-in ADF disk manager, which allows you to double-click on your ADF files. That's images of floppy disks. Uh, and then it just mounts them in Workbench. So that's really handy. They've added JPEG and WAV data types, amongst others. We've got shell enhancements like pressing tab to auto-complete a file name. Now, I always miss that one. That's not present in a command line. When I go back and use an old computer, I always hit tab. And, and when nothing happens, it's like, oh, right, I've got to type out that whole file name then. <laughs> it's such a time saver. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, and loads more besides. But it's all those little tweaks that just make it a little bit more friendly and a little bit more enjoyable to use an Amiga in the present day. So sure, I really do like it, John. Even if I do still love the blues and the oranges of Workbench 1.3, sometimes I have to admit, progress is good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sometimes it is, sometimes it is. So you can pre-order Amiga OS now from retailers around the world, including Retro Rewind. And Neil, there's never been a better segue into an ad. Do it, John. <laughs> That's right, Neil. You can pre-order Amiga OS 3.2 right now on RetroRewind.ca for an expected shipping date of June 14th. But I've heard that that date has been mega bumped up and you're going to be able to get it much closer than that. Uh, the license for OS 3.2 is $50, and that allows you to install it on any number of Amigas you might own and includes the Kickstart ROM files. Uh, if you need them, uh, you can purchase multiple physical Kickstart ROMs for all of your Amigas if you haven't updated those recently. And uh, those are only $10 a piece, but that's not all. You can save big by using the promo code TWIRSPRINGFUN at checkout and save 10% off your order. So keep your Amiga software as shiny and up-to-date as your hardware and treat yourself to the best classic Amiga experience with OS 3.2. Big thank you to RetroRewind.ca for sponsoring this week's episode. TWIR spring fun. If only spring would arrive here, John. Is it <laughs> still cold spring. in England? Oh, it's storm. We've got hailstones today. Yeah, it's terrible. Oh. Terrible. Anyway, on to our next story. Another classic game is getting a physical release this week. And this time it's the turn of Mega Man for the North American market because in 1994, while Japan and power regions were enjoying physical copies of Mega Man The Wily Wars over in North America, 
It was only released on the Sega channel, a cable download service. It never came out on a physical cartridge. Now, John, did you or anyone you knew ever have access to the Sega channel? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. You know, I was always a big Nintendo guy, but my buddy had the Sega channel. And although I'd never admit defeat by saying anything conciliatory towards a rival platform <laughs> in the grand schoolyard tradition, I will admit that secretly I was really impressed by it. Um, I've always been a fan of pocket-sized gaming experiences and the, the small-scale games that I believe might have been Sega Channel exclusives, in addition to the full releases like the Wily Wars that were exclusive to the Sega Channel, uh, made it a pretty attractive package for around 15 bucks a month. How, how did it work then? Because this was a cable TV network. So how did you get that into your Mega Drive? Was there additional hardware? There was, there was, yeah, there was a there was an adapter of some kind that that plugged in from your 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 cable line, and I guess it worked sort of like a cable modem, where it was able to pull things off the uh, you know data from your cable line into the adapter, which hooked into the cartridge slot of your of your Genesis or your Mega Drive. So uh, it was it was pretty neat, and uh, as far as I know. Uh, I think that there was a similar service on the Atari 2600, but apart from those two things, you really didn't get a download service on consoles. That was mostly a thing that you did with a modem in your computer, you know? Mm. There was a really interesting one on some of the 8-bit micros here, particularly on the ZX Spectrum. You could build your own kit. There was a magazine that came out, and you could build your own kit, and it was just a little light sensor that plugged into the Spectrum, and you would mm -hmm. place that in the corner of the television. And then a TV show about computers would play and they would just be pulsing flashing lights in in a few pixels in the corner of the screen and that would be your ones and zeros the light sensor would be feeding that into the spectrum to load a piece of software wow how that cool. was pretty cool yeah yeah, yeah. Um, anyway let's get back to this story um where were we for 25 years 25 years the u.s was waiting for a physical release of this mega man game it's all John ever talks to talks to me about away from the show. He's like, Neil, when can I get Mega Man, the Wily Wars, physically? Well, John, the <laughs> time day. has come. <laughs> every day, every day. And now retro bit are fulfilling your dream. But like any good physical game release in the modern day, it comes with the usual trumpery, including a certificate of authenticity, reversible cover sleeves, a set of lenticular collector's cards, double-sided posters, a sticker collection, and the game on a semi-transparent blue sparkly cartridge Ooh. and this will all set you back $69.99 or €69.99 Euros which um, I should point out exchanges at $85 US dollars. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> there's really no excuse in this day and age for not adjusting your price for different currencies unless that includes shipping but it's not clear on the site there. I, I, would, I would say no I'd say Europe just gets screwed yeah, again probably, probably. Yeah. <laughs> but you might already have this game because Mega Man The Wily Wars is part of the Sega Genesis mini release, one of the 42 bundled games. And also back in 2012, it was part of the Ultimate Portable Game Player compilation. That was a little handheld with 80 built-in games. So it's not really a huge exclusive release in terms of being able to play this game. It's not like the first time you could ever play it over there. The Genesis mini ROM, that was ripped some time ago. So you could pop that in your EverDrive and you could play it just fine on your original hardware. But it is the first time you can actually go out and buy a physical copy, an official copy of the cartridge. And, um, you know, it will complete your Mega Man collection up on the shelf if you're a completionist and you need to buy this sort of thing. And in the context of importing Japanese games for your collection, we talked about the prices at Super Potato on our last show. In comparison, $69. It's, uh, it's not cheap, but it is within 
just within i think that impulse price range for hardcore collectors i'd say it sits mm-hmm. about there now i always admired mega man uh, particularly on the nes john we never quite got a game like it on any any of the systems that i own nothing really tapped into mega man that that genre the same way that mega man did were you a fan of it oh yeah i, I mean mega man 2 is one of my absolute favorite games of all time to me, Mega Man embodies everything I love about the platforming genre. You've got tight controls, a variety of colorful environments and enemies, and a, a rocking soundtrack. Uh, Mega Man 2 was the first game that I actually took a tape recorder and I held it up to the TV to record so I could listen to the tunes from the game on my Walkman as I rode up and down uh, the street on my wow. bike just all afternoon. You're, uh, you're right. I've never, <clears throat> I've never played a game from the 8-bit era, really on, on any system, that could come close to the type of experience you get from a Mega Man game. Yeah, yeah, it really was quite unique. Now, this game, The Wily Wars, uh, it it did seem to review well from what research I've done. Uh, it's it's nowhere near the best in the series, apparently. It's not great, it's not terrible. But I should point out that Retrobit have some other cartridges in their range, like they've got the Data East collection. And that's at the much more affordable price of $34.99. It doesn't come with the stickers and such. You've just got a nice box, you've got the cartridge, black cartridge, um and uh a much lower price so i'd like to think that in time perhaps we'll see a regular edition of this come out at the 35 or 40 dollar mark and i'd buy it at that price all day for my collection yeah yeah well they're definitely counting on the Mega Man fanboys and collectors to come out of the woodwork on this so they've not skimped on both the collectibles as you said or the price points uh, i'd wager this thing will be snapped up pretty quick particularly if it's the now ubiquitous limited edition uh, that's where we're headed these na- these days in the classic gaming scene. Everything's a limited edition. There's always short supply uh, for better or worse. I'd say mostly for worse. But Yeah, yeah. Uh, the words yeah. limited edition are plastered all over that website. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're really going for it. But uh, that website is retro-bit.com. That's where you can find out more if this game is for you. Neil, we've heard of all kinds of retro remakes over the years. You've got programmers writing games for the Atari 2600, the Nintendo Game Boy, and of course all of the classic micros. But uh, one retro format that was once dominant has been somewhat left behind over the years, and that's HyperCard. Uh, In case you were not aware, uh, HyperCard was a development tool written for the early Macintosh computers that allowed users to create simple applications using units called stacks. You'd move through the stacks in a way not dissimilar to navigating the modern World Wide Web as a series of links on each card of the virtual stack. Uh, Many fantastic early Macintosh games were made with HyperCard, uh, as cataloged in the book The Secret History of Mac Gaming. Uh, Because of the scripting ability written into the language, you could produce some incredibly deep experiences, including games with sound and animation. Uh, Neil, I know you're not the the biggest Mac gamer in the world. Uh, Have you ever messed around with any hypercard games on an old SE30? I'm sure I've probably messed around with more games than I'm aware of were actually made in hypercard because it hides it pretty well. The Mm -hmm. big one, of course, is the manhole. Everyone Mm -hmm. knows that one. Um, I would have loved to have a go at actually making games myself on HyperCard because it it seems like it was a pretty intuitive and nice system to use. That's the impression I get anyway. So, of course, the manhole manhole went on to get a CD-ROM release and then the Miller Brothers um, 
went on to make Mist off of the back of that. And I think the original Mist was made in HyperCard also. It was. It, it, was, it was programmed on a, on a Mac Quadra in HyperCard. So, right. yeah. Pretty, okay. Uh, HyperCard, much like I think the Unity engine, like you said, you can hide it pretty well and, and people don't realize, you know, what you're doing. Uh, and, and that's one of the hallmarks of a great a great design language. So, um, yeah, this now the game we're going to talk about this week isn't exactly a HyperCard stack, but it's probably the closest thing to a modern equivalent. Neil, I present to you by way of subreddit user Juicy Cow. A game called Undying Dusk. This is possibly the first video game ever created and played through the PDF format. Nothing says gaming like PDFs, right, Neil? <laughs> Certainly a bold choice, John. <laughs> so this game is, um, well, it's, it's massive. Um, it contains 200,000 pages and boasts 20 music tracks, a grid-based world with 50 distinct tiles and 10 maps to explore. There's treasures, weapons, spells, everything you'd expect to find in a sort of dungeon crawler RPG type game. And just like a choose-your-own-adventure, uh, there are thousands of ways to lose, each with its own game over screen and only one path to victory. Uh, best of all, there's actually an integrated online Hall of Fame so you can track your best efforts with everyone else in real time. Neil, what do you think about all this? I, I'm actually impressed with this, John. I downloaded this and gave it a play. And the first thing I noticed was that page count, just under 200,000 pages sat at the top mm -hmm. of my PDF reader. <laughs> and it is a classic dungeon crawler. It's a really clever use of the PDF format. And as a technical demonstration, it really is cool to see. It was also very easy to cheat. <laughs> um, because if you just press the left and right arrow keys on the keyboard, of course, it goes left and right to the next page in the document. So it's like you're teleporting yourself all over the world and you can just jump in wherever you want. Right. Choose a page, carry on playing. Um, so, yeah, I found out how to cheat pretty qu quickly. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it's funny. You, you sort of land in various places and it's just like a big digital travel brochure just flicking through random pages and walking about. Not how you're supposed to play, but that's how I enjoyed it. The music and the artwork in this game is actually really well made. So as playable as it is in this PDF technical demo, and as well as, as they've done it and pulled it off, I'd love to see this evolve into a real engine with, a, with an inventory system and with animation, because obviously mm -hmm. there's no animation in a PDF document. Right. I, 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 you know, there's these nice torches on the wall. I want to see them flickering. There's these lovely pools of water. I want to see them shimmering. Uh, it's no, by no way a criticism of what's been achieved here. It's just a comment on the quality of, of the artwork and what they've created. And I, I just want to see more of it. I want to see them take it even further and play this game. How about you, John? How did you find playing it? Well, as you know, I'm no great fan of the uh, dungeon crawler genre. Uh, you know, when I play a dungeon crawler, even a game that everybody loves, like Dungeon Master, what I see is the repetitive gray walls, the almost immediate sense of feeling lost and frustrated unless you break out the graph paper. Uh, it's, it's just never been my thing. But this game may be the game that makes me turn the corner on this genre. Uh, Undying Dusk, contrary to its name, uh, boasts an incredible amount of varied, colorful graphics. There's tons of different areas to explore. You're not just in a dark dungeon the whole time. There's a fantastic uh, atmospheric soundtrack and the controls are easy to get a handle on. I mean, it is just a PDF after all. What you're doing is basically just clicking on links in the document. Uh, if you press Alt-Left, 
You can always rewind back to the point at which you feel like you screwed up and try again. Uh, and everything is completely mapped in this game. It's incredible the way that the mapping system works. When you're going, when you're traveling around and you're clicking on the map screen, you forget that all you're doing is just looking at a PDF. It's it's very very well done. Yeah, the alt left thing was useful. Just in the first screen, there's this box pushing scene, and if you mm -hmm. push them in the wrong order, you get completely stuck. So you've got to get back. So don't think of this as a choose your own adventure sort of. If you want to do this, go to this page. It is very very interactive. True. Yeah. yeah, I love this game, Neil. I loved it. Uh, I hope all of you out there listening try it and throw Lucas C a few bucks if you do like it. Uh, I think he really deserves it. So, uh, where can you get it? Undying Dusk is available right now on Lucas's itch.io page at lucas-c.itch.io, and you can download it for the ever-popular Name Your Own Price. Check it out. Neil, last week's community question of the week was... What game do you remember playing as a child that you have been unable to track down as an adult? And we got some great responses over on the subreddit, uh, Neil. I'm going to start things off with Headers D, and he says, Not sure if this is within the rules. It's not one game, but a compilation. Specifically, it was a compilation for the BBC Micro by Superior Software, and one of the games was a Galaxian clone. Sure, there were quite a few Galaxian clones for the micro out there, Neil. Did you ever did you ever take a hand at one of those? There were so many arcade ports for the BBC Micro. Um, lots of really good ones, actually. I don't I don't think I've played the Galaxian one, uh, but it's probably very similarly named. It's probably like Galagians or something like that. They normally just change one letter in the title. Um, yeah, it's it's nice to see people also trying to help headers to identify what this game is. Somebody suggested it's in the Acorn Soft Hits Volume Two. Um, but they haven't actually got down to the name of the game there. So if anyone knows what the superior software Galaxian clone was on the BBC Micro, let us know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Croc Kamen writes, The first games I ever played were on the school's BBCs, and there was this one game that had you exploring the seas and mapping out land you found. Now, Seven Cities of Gold or its sequel, Heart of Africa, would fit the, that description, but those were never available on the BBC. To this day, I wonder what game it was and if I somehow imagined it. And uh, no one, I don't think anybody has uh, has answered yet. So if you have any idea, again, please uh, comment on the subreddit. Sounds like one of those ones we would have been made to play in one of our lessons at school. So you're exploring seas and mapping out the land on a BBC Micro. Uh, it, it it rings so true, but there were so many educational games like that that we played in the 80s at school. So I, I don't know the name of that one, but yeah, hopefully someone can find that out. Yeah, and finally, UK Cheeky Monkey writes, <laughs> like the other posts here, mine are from the BBC, and I've been trying to track them down. They're all educational programs. One is a white screen with red text graphics, and I think it's something along the lines of taking a shot with a rocket in an invader's fashion as a reward for spelling or guessing a word, maybe. Uh, the other was a blue screen with a grid. There were shapes and objects on the screen and a set of commands that had to be input by the user, such as north 5, east 2, or up 5, left 2. So sort of like a battleship type thing. Yeah, interesting that we've got three BBC Micro choices there, and I guess that probably ties in with... Here in the UK, the BBC Micro being one of our earliest experiences of computing because we would have had them at the back of our classrooms from the age of five in primary school in many cases. Right. So, uh, you know, some of our earliest memories that we just can't dream up and remember what the names of these things are. Yeah. Great choices. Yeah. So, yeah, fantastic. Thank you guys so much for responding to our community question of the week. We appreciate it. And this week's 
community question of the week is, what games company would you like to go back in time and see as a fly on, or see a fly on the wall documentary made about and why? I'm sure we're going to get lots of great responses on this one. So if you have an idea, please post your response in the show subreddit r slash this week in retro, and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week. Today's episode of This Week in Retro comes thanks to our partners at Anchor FM. Whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash thisweekinretro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.